Let me ask you to turn with me, if you would, to the first epistle of John. First John chapter 2. We'll be reading from the very closing verses of the chapter and then over into chapter 3. I should make a correction to Dr. Overly's announcements. I believe I heard him say that um, at your fellowship meal, you were to bring enough for yourselves and a little bit more for the college students. College students must have changed. (laughs) When I was in school, you needed to bring a lot more. I actually remember, do they still have dormitory meetings from the dean of men and dean of women's office to make announcements in a real personal way? Duff's Smorgasbord had called the school a time or two about the amount at the all-you-could-eat buffet that some of the male students were partaking of. I don't know if the announcement came the week after I went or not, but uh, college students can eat a lot, brother, so bring a lot extra for them. Uh, it may be needed. I want to read to you from 1 John 2, just beginning in verse 28 and the opening few verses of chapter 3. Very brief reading together. Now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doth righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Linda reading in chapter 3 and verse 3. And again, we trust the Lord's own blessing to be upon the public reading of his inspired word. And I'll ask you to join together with me and let's bow our heads and our hearts again in a word of prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, we have rejoiced in singing together with those of like precious faith, some of the glorious gospel news and testimony that belongs to your people. And we come and ask that as we consider today a word that is a precious word indeed, that you will give us the help of your spirit for preaching and for hearing, that you would write your word upon every heart. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I have been impressed more and more as the years have gone on with the the good thing that it is to try and put yourself into the place of the characters that we find in the Scriptures. It's not to say that these Bible characters are somehow superhuman, that they're just uh, the false characters in romanticized stories. No. These are real human beings. 
They are the characters that God has chosen to use and to place in His Word for us throughout the generations to read of and to learn of. Sometimes they're put before us as great examples. Other times, well, it's a bad example that we find and we learn from that. But I say to put ourselves in the place of these in Scripture, in a sense to to read between the lines. I'm trying to get that worked into the hermeneutics course in the seminary, reading between the lines. I don't know that perhaps that's what we should do. You know, there are a lot of bestsellers out there about stuff that's not in the Bible. It's been a lot of years since the Bible code book, but you know, you can... You can sell a New York Times bestseller to people trying to find out what the Bible doesn't say, but, it, but it's supposed to say in between. We need a bestseller telling people just to read the Bible of what it really does say. But of course, I'm not trying, talking about trying to find hidden meaning and stuff that's not really there and maybe tweaking our eschatology a little bit with something secret that nobody else has discovered over the centuries. I'm just talking about putting ourselves into the place of the writers. What were the circumstances they were living through? How old were they at this point versus this point in their lives and what we find in the scriptures? What were the other circumstances that surrounded the recipients of these letters? And as I come and in my own church, I've been preaching through the life and the epistles of the Apostle John now for over a year. And just to think of where John is in his experience as he writes this epistle. He's elderly. He's writing to those that he affectionately calls repeatedly his dear children, his beloved. Elderly isn't as far off in the distance to me as it used to be, and I can appreciate some of those thoughts with regard to children and now grandchildren and your thoughts of what's before them. And John is writing from a personal standpoint and even from an inspired standpoint now, if you consider it, it's perhaps the mid-90s as he writes these epistles, Paul's pastoral letters, the last of Paul's letters and Peter's epistles are some 30 years in the past by this point. It's a second generation in the New Testament church that are the recipients of these words. There have been changes I mean, nothing's changed in our lives in 30 years, right? It's staggering to think of the world we live in now compared to 30 years ago. It's perhaps even more staggering to consider what it will be 30 years from now. Error had come in, not just the pressures from outside that you see maybe the Thessalonians enduring, but pressures from inside. What Paul told the Ephesian elders decades before is already transpiring when John writes these words. They're those rising up from among the leaders of the churches that are bringing false doctrines. And John's first epistle is written, and it's really a notoriously difficult book to outline. But I tend to agree with those that see within it cycles. They're, they're tests of profession. There's a doctrinal test. There are certain truths that can't be denied and, and you remain within the orbit of Christianity. There's a moral test. There are those that were already perverting the, the Bible's teaching with regard to the law and said that Christians could continue living in open sin, no problem. Well, John says the man that teaches that's a liar. 
It's interesting, there's also a social test. Love. And you look through this epistle, how often he speaks of the love of the brethren. That's one of the things he said, if you don't have that, you're not really a believer. That's pretty staggering. And yet think of it, that's, that's a result of the gospel. The love of the brethren. The Pharisees could profess a certain orthodoxy. They might pass a doctrinal test. The Pharisees professed a godliness of lifestyle. They might pass a moral test. But where was the love of the brethren? Where was the heart impacted by grace and being one that has experienced and received grace? That's a test they wouldn't have passed. These are the things John is working through in his epistle. The section we've read today would, I guess, fall more within those cycles of comments in the moral realm. He speaks much in here of godliness, which we'll see. But I want to focus our thoughts more on a theme that he introduces here. He, he approaches the moral test from another perspective. He approaches it from the perspective of family. He approaches it from the perspective of us being the children of God. And so I want to speak to you today on the theme of adoption. We've noted in the bulletin the realities of adoption, but if I could extend that for our thoughts, it's the realities and the results of adoption that I want to speak to you about this morning. He has said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. There are four perspectives I want to share with you as we share our time together today. And the first one is this. The wonderful source of our adoption. That opening phrase in the third chapter, the apostle says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we. And if you can pause and think about everything encapsulated in that little word, we. Who are we outside of Christ? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we might be called the sons of God. The love of God to our souls. Always remember, and perhaps even from the most familiar verse in all the Scripture, and one many of you have known from your infancy, as have I. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Never forget the order. Never forget the sequence. It doesn't say God gave His Son. It doesn't say God's Son uh, gave Himself as a propitiation. He provided an atonement for our sins in order that God might love us. That's the way the flesh tries to twist it very often. That's the way false religion will twist it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God so loved that He gave 
The atonement didn't drag down the love. The love happily, freely sent down the atonement. And John here uses an interesting term. Behold, what manner of love. It's a phrase that more literally would be translated in this way. Of what country? Of what country? When I was a little guy in Sunday school, one of the first memory verses beyond John 3.16 that I recall, and maybe the reason I recall being taught it was this, Mark 4.41b. It was the first time I had a memory verse with a reference that had something extra, but we only were to memorize the last part of the verse. But it's the disciples, and they said, Behold, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? When Jesus from the ship tossed to and fro in the storm had just spoken, and the storm was calmed. It's the same phrase that John's using here. Where is this from? What manner of man is this? The wonderful source of our adoption is a love that is so staggering, that is so contrary to our experience, that it's from another place, it's from another country, it's foreign. How do we respond to one another naturally? We answer sin with sin. You know, you're dealing with the children. One of them smacks the other one upside of the head. It's okay, Mom, he hit me first. No, two wrongs don't make a right. But that's how we naturally, as sinners, respond. And we look in the world, and it's not just the quarreling little ones. Look in the corporate world. Look in any realm. Normally, for sinners, we answer sin with sin. It's a foreign thing. It's a different thing when somebody answers sin with love. That is what God has done. And John can say from his experience knowing Christ in the days of his flesh, from walking with him through decades of sanctification and even the unique experience of an apostle. In the very last of his aged years, hasn't gotten over the wonder of it all. Behold, what manner of love. Could take... Time will not today, but to work through the Bible's whole teaching with regard to total depravity. It's to these type of people that God has shown His love. What a phrase. What a truth. The love of God. But secondly, I would put before you this. The remarkable privilege of our adoption. And I'll ask you to turn with me to Romans 8 to some very familiar verses. But let us read them together again and marvel, I say, at the remarkable privilege that belongs to us. 
Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. The remarkable privilege of adoption. We had a joke in the early years and for a long time as the Free Presbyterian Church was taking root in North America. Our beloved Dr. Allison, who has recently entered into glory. Well, it seemed every time he was called upon to preach, he only had one sermon. He always preached on justification. So we teased him. You only have one sermon. I used to say as a footnote to that, if he ever changes it, we're going to kick him out. But I remember hearing Mark preach one time, and he, he kind of expanded the borders a little bit. And he preached about adoption. And he gave an illustration that perhaps he's given in this pulpit here, but if the apostles can repeat themselves, then so can we. But he said, when we think of justification and how many of us had been blessed by that preaching in the early years in this very place, I mean, to understand the ground of our acceptance, get into some of these things in the Reformed faith with regard to the active obedience of Christ, of His entering into that covenant that we broke, of His fulfilling the law of God that we were obligated to, and in our nature, perfectly obeyed. In our nature, merited the presence of God and freely imputes that to His believing people. The truth of that and and that God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. For that reason, what precious and satisfying truth that is. But Mark said, that's almost as it were just the scene in the courtroom. The legal grounds whereby God can receive us unto himself. But he said, when we pass in thinking of our salvation and all the component parts of that to this corollary truth of adoption. Well, that's where the judge has pronounced the one before him as innocent, as without spot with regard to the law. He is not guilty. But the judge doesn't leave the defendant then to walk out of the courtroom and go his merry way back into life. He said in adoption, the judge steps out of the the box and he goes down and puts his arm around him and says, son, you're innocent now, let's go home. And he brings him into his own family that we might be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That we might never in the sight of God be viewed as separated from Jesus. There's a phrase in the book of Hebrews that to me is quite staggering. 
It says of Christ that he would not be ashamed to call us brethren. How often it's true of us that we're ashamed of someone. I think more often than not, it's a a sin on our part, as if we have no problems and the person we're ashamed of does. But in this case, one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, that he would not be ashamed to call us brethren. That we, as Peter phrases it, have an inheritance in him that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away. Reserved in heaven for us. These are the privileges that belong to us as adopted sons of our God. There's a phrase that the Lord uses in the upper room. John 14 as he speaks to his disciples in that remarkable evening. And he spoke about going from them to heaven to prepare a place for them that he might receive them unto himself, or he's coming again to receive us unto himself. And then he says that that where I am, there ye may be also. I remember an occasion several years ago in my ministry. We have communion in the evenings in our church in Winston. In the morning, I'd been preaching through a series in the, the Feasts of Israel, And that particular morning, I had preached on the Day of Atonement, which was the only day in the calendar year that anyone, and it was the high priest alone, went into the holy place, into the Holy of Holies. And I had worked through some of those types and shadows, and we'd had a good day together. I hadn't thought of it at all, but we came to the communion table, and I was in John 14. And when I read in the the Bible reading at the table that phrase, where I am, there ye may be also. All of those things we've been thinking of from the morning of Christ entering into the holy place. And I brought a truth that I've said many times and perhaps I've even said it here. I don't believe, at least in my youth and the experience and the preaching I'd heard, that there had been enough of an emphasis on the ascension of Christ. A lot of preaching on the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, and all very necessary and very good. But in the ascension, to understand that Jesus didn't merely go back where he came from. Now, yes, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he came from the Father. But in the incarnation, he took into union with himself our nature. I always like to say it that way. God didn't become a man as if he wasn't God anymore. The second person of the Trinity who was and is and forever shall be what he always was. But he took into union with himself something he'd never been. He took into union with himself our nature. And he ascended bodily That body had never been in heaven. That body had never been in the presence of a triune God. The immediate presence. And in our nature, 
he ascended to the presence of God. In our nature today, he is seated at the right hand of God. And we today are seated together with him there. But again, that's just the legal stuff. One day, we'll be there in experience. Because it's one of the privileges of belonging to that family. The remarkable privilege of adoption. But I want to share with you thirdly this morning the notable stages of our adoption. John here speaks of some things that we know about our adoption and some things that we don't know. Now that shouldn't put us off. That in many ways is quite comforting, quite glorious. But he says, beloved, now are we the sons of God? This we know. This is real. This isn't something that hasn't happened yet. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are fully justified. We're as justified now as we ever will be. We're adopted. We're as much a member of the family now as we ever will be. And so we are the sons of God. It is a fact. John will elaborate on this more fully down the line in in the letter, but there's enough evidence of this fact, he says, that the world takes note. He says, therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. You know, I think it's interesting as you read through the scriptures, the different pieces of our interaction with the world. I mean, John has said here in chapter 2, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father. It's of the world. And we're not to love it. We're different than the world. And the world knows that. And the world takes notice of that. But then there are other places where we're looking at the requirements for a church officer, an elder. Well spoken of by those that are without. The world is going to take note in, in a positive way of one that is a mature Christian, that's an example of the believer. You can almost illustrate it like this. The world loves to work with Christians. They if they're living as they should, give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. They're dependable. They're not bringing more problems than good when they come to work. And so they're quite happy uh, to interact with, to do business with someone that won't shortchange them. Someone that would rather be shortchanged. You look at your business dealings in that way, that you'd rather suffer wrong than to have somebody suffer wrong at your hand. That's a Christian way of doing business with the world. And the world is going to respect that. 
But at quitting time, yeah, you go your own way. I don't get it, but, and off they go to their drunkenness or whatever. The world takes notice that we're the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now are we the sons of God. But there's something that's not yet. And this not yet is something that's not fully revealed. You think of John and all of his experience. And perhaps part of his experience as he was one of that inner circle of three, we call it, that was with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. That he saw Christ gloriously shining. He says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Even John doesn't know the fullness of it. But he says this, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That side of Christ You know, it's a side of Christ now that aids us in sanctification. As we see more of Him, we're transformed more into His image. But in that day, we will be in His immediate presence. And we will be transformed forever, never to change again to what we know in these vile and frail bodies. We'll be as he is. I don't have time to develop this. I do believe I preached on it here once before. But just consider the eighth psalm. How many times that psalm is referenced in the New Testament scriptures that, that we were made, that man was made for a little while lower than the angels, but in God's eternal purpose to be crowned with glory and honor to be his regent over the rest of his creation. I think it is this that Satan was envious of and thus made his assault upon man. He would be the one that would ascend into heaven. He would be the one that would be like the Most High. He wouldn't be subservient to another of God's creatures. But we lost that in the first man. more than regained in the second man. What a wonder it will be when He appears and we shall be like Him. But I want to come finally to our fourth thought and that is the inevitable result of our adoption. John says in the third verse, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Here is one of the evidences of the new birth. Here is one of the evidences of regeneration, of spiritual life where spiritual deadness and death had reigned. That we pursue godliness 
that we pursue likeness to Christ, that we grow into the image of the one that has adopted us. Adoption in our experience is a precious thing. I made the mistake one time of speaking to someone years ago about biological children versus adopted children. And you can use the phrase, you know, they have two of their own. And no, adopted children are their own as well. And you look in the preciousness of adoption. To take one from whatever circumstances they may be found in. And to bring them into the home. To make them part of the family. To love them. To set your love upon them. What a precious and wonderful thing. But you know, we think of that in the context usually of the the little babies. And we rear them and they're our children. The Roman world, sometimes they adopted adults. There was more of a legal aspect. There was an inheritance aspect, a title, a privilege that might be conferred upon one that was very far from a little baby. And you can follow these things again in our own experience and see precious truths. But you think of this. As wonderful and precious as adoption can be in our experience... There's some aspects of legal adoption and nurturing and all of that that we have here that can't be true as they are in this adoption in the gospel. Physical characteristics. Mom and dad might both be seven foot tall volleyball champions and the little one might not attain seven feet. The genes may not quite match up. But here, God imparts to us a new nature. Renewed after the image of Him that created us. As He brings us into His family, He has the power to change us into His image. To work in us all that was lost. To fit us for glory. To fit us for His presence. I was studying some years ago, actually to teach what I have to teach next winter, this coming winter in our seminary, eschatology. And some of the aspects of what we call individual eschatology, the doctrine of heaven and hell and of eternal life. And to think even of some of the mystery of what will be wrought, what change will be wrought, can we even speak of it physically, for the lost to endure the torments of the lake of fire forever? What changes will be wrought in us 
that we might enjoy the presence of God. Scripture, several places, indicates that we can't see God now. We have to be in His immediate presence, or in His immediate presence. There are things intervening. God is omnipresent, but we're not in His immediate presence. To be there where there's nothing intervening, we would be consumed. To be so gloriously and miraculously changed that God's presence, that the new heavens and the new earth will be our natural environment. And that we will enjoy Him forever. Every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself even as He is pure. We pursue it imperfectly. We falter. David, a man after God's own heart, could with eyes wide open walk into sin. But he couldn't be unaffected by it. It was contrary to who he was. So read Psalm 51. But to be brought to the point where the temptations, were they even present, would have no power. That we would have the wisdom and the maturity to understand is at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What are these sinful things? I mean, seriously. What is sinful pleasure in comparison to godly pleasure? It was early in my ministry. I wish I had made a note of who it was. I think it was one of the bees, maybe Boston. I'm not sure. But they made the statement, meet every sin, meet every temptation with the phrase, the Lord is my portion. If you can understand that phrase, that the infinite God is your inheritance. What temptation can compare with that? We have to purposely shut our eyes and our hearts to that in order to run after the thing. But to meet temptation, I am a child of God. I don't deserve it, but He has adopted me into His family. And He, by His Spirit, is working grace in me even now to change me more and more after the image of Christ. But thank God, one day, that work will be complete. For I will see Him as He is. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Where is this from? It's from Him that we might be called the sons of God. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your word will find a place in our needy hearts.
that you will encourage and challenge us as need may be. And bless this Lord's Day, our meditations. We are pilgrims in a strange land, and we need grace. But you give more grace. So grant that to us as your dear children. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.